Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, October 11th, 2016, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Our special guest tonight is Leela Hutchison, who was the first American woman to journey into the giant selenite crystal caves of Mexico, which is the title of her book. Leela is a graduate gemologist, earliest explorer, researcher, and author on the world's largest crystals found in Mexico. Her book is about exploration of caves, Mexico, crystals, and her detailed experience in the giant selenite crystal caves. She specializes in presenting information on the remarkable qualities of selenite, considered by many to be one of the major power-generating energies of the emerging new global consciousness. Her topic tonight will be about the paranormal phenomena found in the Chihuahuan Desert in the same area as the crystals were discovered. You can check out her website, thecrystalgiants.com, and her Facebook pages, um, I think it's pronounced Nyaka, you can correct me when I get you on the line here, N-A-I-C-A, Nyaka Caves, and uh, another Facebook page is Giant Crystals of Mexico. And we'd like to thank Fiona and Vanya for hosting the switchboard this evening for those who may have a comment or question for Leela. If you'd like to chat with like-minded people, we have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds, thanks to Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download any show in our archives on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page using the cloud with an arrow on it. We'd appreciate your support of our show, and you can do that by clicking follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notices. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. For those who need healing of any kind for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will help. And if you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power, you can find out when it happens by requesting your solar return timing. And if you want a stage two interpretation of that solar return chart, please order it at least two or three months ahead of time to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So, uh, first this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia, if I can find her on the switchboard here. Hang on. Okay, hang on. There we go. Hi, Anastasia. Welcome to our Starseed News. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. It's great to be with you. Hope you've all had a wonderful week, and then we're going to get started with tonight's news. All right. Well, scientists have found an unexpectedly deep seismic act going on along a California fault in Southern California to be exact 
scientists have been listening to the rumblings that are deep underground and have found seismic activity at deeper than expected levels. And they say it may signal new earthquake extremes. And this is according to a new study, the article Out of Live Science. They say that deeper or smaller seismic activity can be very difficult to monitor, especially in urban areas, due to the distance between seismicity monitors and the noise caused by traffic and industry. So in order to better see these so-called micro-signals, a group of researchers temporarily deployed detectors along the North Newport Englewood Fault, Newport Englewood NIF, that stretches nearly 50 miles from Culver City to Newport Beach in Southern California. Well, by filtering out the noise, the researchers found that activity along the NIF was unusually deep and frequent compared to similar faults in the region. Now, the researchers said that these signals could lead to a better understanding of the depths at which earthquakes occur and could further illuminate the structure of the fault. So I think they're really getting this down. They're really seeming to. Every week I read something, well, often, uh, that they're making new discoveries uh, about these earthquake faults. So that's probably very good. They're working yeah. on it. In the meantime, we did have a shallow uh, 4.9 earthquake off the coast of Oregon this past week. <clears throat> Excuse me. We had a magnitude 4.9 off the coast of uh, Oregon, let's see, that was two days, no, one day. That was October 9th, by the way. And a 6.2 magnitude quake off of east, eastern Indonesia. And we had, uh, let's see here, I'm checking my stats, a 5.8 magnitude off the uh, coast of New Zealand. They said that was part of an aftershock of that 7 point something that happened recently. And a Japanese volcano has dramatically erupted. They said it's, it's uh, spreading ash all over the countryside. Uh, people along the foothills of Mount Aso in Japan are cleaning up after this eruption, rained tons of ash down on their homes and streets. They say that uh, a second one could follow. No one was reportedly injured. However, the volcanic alert has been raised to a level three, and they're t cautioning people not to approach the volcano. There was footage on the Internet that showed flames bursting, bursting from several sources on the mountaintop as the as the uh, the volcano was belching this thick black ash. <clears throat> Very dramatic footage. So let's talk about volcanoes. We've just done that. Now let's talk about ice. We're going to do fire and ice tonight. <clears throat> because scientists that once claimed that Arctic ice would melt entirely, totally, zilch be gone by September of 2016, well, they got it badly wrong. Uh, they've been predicting this for some time now. Uh, proponents of global warming have been talking about that, and they have definitely stated that the Arctic would be completely devoid of sea ice by this year, uh, last month. And uh, the latest satellite images are showing that there is far more now than in 2012. The ice along the Arctic regions is growing. Now, um, actually, uh, a leading expert on Arctic sea ice loss, one of these uh, scientists that, inf that uh, participated in this prediction that it would be gone by now, he recently published a book entitled A Farewell to Ice, in which he repeats his assertion that the polar region would be feel, uh, free of ice in this decade. <clears throat> As late as this summer, this scientist author, just this summer, was he was predicting, uh, still predicting, an ice-free September. 
wow, you know, I mean, he should have been checking the stats to know that late this summer it wasn't shrinking, okay? This is how people are. We make assertions, people, humans, and don't want to be wrong, and we'll defend it at all costs. We see this all over the political arena, and this guy's no different. So the figures were released on September 10th, and these figures show that there was still 1.6 million square miles of sea ice, which is, according to these stats, 21% more than the lowest point in 2012. So good news for the penguins. I'm happy about that. <laughs> there is still plenty of Arctic sea ice, in fact, a lot more. And I'm sure you, you all maybe have heard, uh, and I've mentioned it on this show, that there are uh, experts that are beginning to pick up steam now in the prediction of another ice age. And indeed, when I was uh, checking, of course, you know, it could just be another hairy, scary thing, but that's what they're saying. And uh, in uh, surveying the, the news for this week, I did find that we're having early winter many parts of the world. For example, in British Columbia, they're having early snowfall in the resort, ski resort of Mount Washington. They got doused with an enormous amount of snow overnight, and they're saying that, well, this is good news for us in the ski world. We're going to have an early and strong start to our winter season. Um, but there are record periods of cold being reported in Australia and actually all over the world, particularly Great Britain, and we've talked about that before on this show. And in uh, Stafford, Arizona, this is kind of an interesting thing, mounds of hail came down in Safford. Residents got more than just rain from their overnight thunderstorm. The National Weather Service claimed that in, uh, it was a Tucson office that claimed this, uh, that there was uh, hail amounting to two inches in diameter and six inches deep in some parts of Arizona. <clears throat> Excuse me. Witnesses said that people were scared. They were running around very scared. They said the hail was coming down so hard that you, all you could see was solid hail. They saw quarter-sized, dime-sized, and even softball-sized hail. Any of you Starseed listeners ever seen big hail? Yeah, it yeah. is wild, it, even pea-sized hail. Um, I've come home to the garden after a thunderstorm where I live and just seen you know, a half-inch of pea-sized hail uh, scattered across the yard in the middle of the summer, and that's a very interesting sight. But softball-sized hail, wow, it's really something. Up to six inches deep, that's a lot of hail. And that's what's been happening in Arizona. So, and in association with that, I'm sure it's probably related, although I can't swear to it, we had eight tornadoes touch down across Kansas, including an EF3. There was a half a dozen tornadoes that touched down in different parts of Kansas last Thursday, and one that was an EF3. Now, damage surveys conducted by National Weather Service said that uh, uh, would place uh, 2016 fourth in the rankings of most October tornadoes in Kansas State history, fourth. So that's a lot, eight tornadoes, all coming at them at once. Oh. Well, you all know we've talked about, or maybe we haven't, maybe you all are familiar with that. I might not have brought this up in the news before, but uh, that pipeline protest that's going on mm -hmm. at the uh, Standing Rock Sioux Reservation, well, they're now calling that protest, they built a little city there, and they're calling it the Sacred Stone Encampment. And it is a city of about 4,000 protesters with a growing infrastructure. Talk about a grassroots movement. Uh, they say that there are native uh, tents, teepees, makeshift buildings, horses, cars, spread across the valley uh, near where the Missouri and Cannonball Rivers come together. And uh, they are 
This is uh, put on by the Standing Rock uh, Sioux Reservation. And native tribes from all over the continent have come to join the Standing Rock Sioux in their battle against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Now, what they're fighting for is to protect their sacred sites, but they say they're also fighting to protect water because the Missouri River alone provides many water needs for millions of Americans. Now, this struggle has become much more than just another massive civil disobedience, as authorities like to call it. They're calling themselves water protectors, and they they use they prefer to use that term to protesters. And indeed, that's what they're doing. And these people have literally constructed what looks like an almost permanent new settlement in North Dakota. What do you think about that? They say the, uh, each day the population is averaging about 4,000 people, and the Sacred Stone Camp, is what they're calling it, is already twice the size of the average North Dakota town. Wow. So that's really something. I mean, people coming together to defend the land, and there they are. They've built themselves a little a little town. Pretty amazing. That's all. Well, we talked... Yeah. We, uh, congratulations for people standing up to do something. I think that's great. That's my editorial opinion there. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, we've talked about water a lot on this show, whether it was drought or uh, just lots of things. We've always talked about water. And um, now I want to share with you that a California judge has given the Nestle Company free pass to t- to continue to take water from what they're saying is a drought-stricken national forest. And so this California federal judge just gave Nestle Company the go-ahead to take water from the San Bernardino National Forest. Now, you all should know that Nestle has become infamous for trying to privatize water from over 50 springs throughout the United States. And residents and small towns have really been fighting back, or they've tried to. Mount Shasta has been a particular area. Uh, that Mount Shasta region, a little town called McLeod near there, um, has been fighting, uh, it was in the past, I don't know what the status is today, but to keep Nestle out of there. And in a recent turn for the worst, according to this article from the Underground Reporter, um, the, this judge gave Nestle the uh, permission to continue drawing water, uh, despite holding a permit that expired, get this, in 1988. 1988. Now, activists that brought suit were hopeful that they could stop Nestle from taking water from the state. And uh, they are working really hard uh, to try to keep their water. California doesn't have hardly any water, but water is enormous business. And it's going to become more so uh, the more our water resources are polluted and depleted. Water is going to be the gold of the future, I do believe. It's a real serious problem. And for corporations, it amounts to profit. Just saying, passing it along. Well, here's a wonderful, fascinating story. I would love to get my head in this trunk of treasures, this uh, amazing thing that has been reported by Live Science, which is a really wonderful place to get news, by the way. Uh, They have discovered more than 25 previously unpublished Dead Sea Scroll fragments dating back about 2,000 years, and it holds text from the Hebrew Bible. Now, this has just now been brought to light, and their contents are being detailed in two new books, according to this article. They say that the various scroll fragments 
are parts from the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on. And there are some here that might not be recognizable. Um, they say that these were found in the Qumran caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were first discovered. And um, they say that they have a few fragments from the book of Nehemiah. That's the one I haven't heard of. And they say that uh, if this fragment is authenticated, it would be the first from the book of Nehemiah. Now, scholars have expressed some some concerns that these fragments might be forgeries. But these 25 newly published fragments are just the tip of the iceberg. That's what I'm talking about, treasure chest. A scholar told the writers of this article that around 70 new discovered fragments have appeared on the antiquities market since 2002. And so uh, other people believe that there are also undiscovered scrolls that are being found by looters who go into caves in the Judean desert. And so certain groups are sponsoring scientific surveys and excavations to find these scrolls before the looters do. It's uh, really something to uncover uh, texts of any kind that deal with matters of uh, sacred nature or mysterious or metaphysical or spiritual nature. Um, You know, for a long time, they would tell us that that was all that there was. What was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was it. And now we're finding that there's possibly many, many more books that could shed a great deal of light or perhaps some... (laughs) necessary confusion on what people believe. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that comes out and how much access we get to that. Usually, uh, benefactors and the wealthy and those privileged people have you know, access to these things long before we do, but I will be one of the first in line to find out what it is that they're going to reveal to us. And speaking about ancient times and antiquity, they have discovered ancient footprints that date back 800,000 years found in the Norfolk, UK. Now, this they did this a couple of years ago. It's an associated article, but I don't know if I reported on it. It's been so long ago, but I wanted to remind you that, um, and I said this before, Lavendar once stated that uh, we were going to see a time when discoveries would be a forthcoming, and, and I've said before how right she was about this. 800,000-year-old footprints, and that is really incredible. They found these footprints in uh, in silt that was on a beach in the northeast coast of the UK. Now, um, they say that uh, our, this is direct evidence of the earliest known humans in northern Europe. Well, the earliest as far as they know, as far as we have. But there you go. That's almost a million years. Isn't that amazing? Wow. So people have been here a long, 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 long time. Well, it's uh, coming into fall and winter, and uh, I have had recent occasions to help people who have had medical problems and, uh, you know, do a little service for others. And um, I have found that these people are being approached constantly. Have they had their flu shots? Have they had their pneumonia shots? Uh, signs posted along the, the, the highways or in the, the on the properties of healthcare facilities, flu shots sold here, uh, pharmacies, get your flu shot here. They are pushing flu shots like crazy, and they've done this for a long time, but it just seems to be building up to a frenzy. And now, a lot of times, doctor's appointments, that is a predetermined question, which I understand that they have told me that this is a, a 
required government mandate that you answer this question. Well, I have a story tonight about the flu vaccine, and it comes from a website called CompleteHealthAndHappiness.com. So here I'm going to share this with you. A recent lab test conducted at the National Natural News Forensic Food Lab. You'll probably most of you know about naturalnews.com. Well, their laboratory found that seasonal flu vaccines contain outrageously high levels of neurotoxic mercury. Vials of batch flu vaccine produced by British pharmaceutical giant GlaxoSmithKline were found to contain upward of 51 parts per million of mercury. That is 25,000 times the legal maximum for drinking water established by the EPA. Now, this discovery was made uh, using advanced spectrometry, spectrometry technology. They say that this technology has incredible accuracy, so they don't question that it's accurate. And uh, they say that this uh, is the nation's regulatory agencies haven't used this type of testing themselves. Interesting, isn't it? Now, they say oh. millions of people are injected with flu vaccines annually, and most people are completely unaware that one of the most toxic metals known to human beings is being implanted directly into their bodies, unabated through vaccines. And um, they say that uh, uh, doctors who have tested these people, holistic doctors, that is, you know we hear all kinds of opinions. If you look at mainstream, they, they think that this claim is, is wacko. However, alternative healthcare practitioners are asserting this, and holistic doctors have said that uh, many many times uh, when people are tested for heavy metal contamination, over 80% of patients have mercury toxicity. So that's something to think about as flu season comes along. All right. Well, here is a wonderful story. I, I'm going to share this with you with uh, delight. There is a child genius in Pennsylvania that is that is studying to be an astrophysicist so that he can become the person who finally proves the existence of God. He's nine years old. His name is William. He graduated from high school this past May, and he is now attending a community college as he develops his theories as to how the universe was created. What do you think about that, Ariel? Nine years old. Starseed, starseed. Huh? <laughs> <Starseed>. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, via the magazine People, uh, this is what they're quoting. And they say that William lives in Penn Township, Pennsylvania, and is among the youngest people ever to attend college. He's currently taking a full slate of classes and uh, wants to ease his into his life as a college student. Now, he plans to enroll next fall at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He said, uh, when the boy asked if he minded being the youngest person in class, he said, it doesn't bother me. I'm used to it. And this boy wants to study the physics and chemistry of space, earn a doctorate degree, and work as an astrophysicist. And he is at ease in talking about concepts like the displacement of space-time, things like singularity and pure gravity, as he attempts to explain why black holes aren't supermassive as theorized by other brilliant minds, such as Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking. Here's a nine-year-old that's going to take these geniuses to task. So the bottom line, according to William, when he said, I want to prove to everybody that God does exist by showing that only an outside force could be capable 
of forming the cosmos. Nine years old, outshining even perhaps Einstein and Hawking, or at least planning on it. So what a world we live in of, of dichotomies and paradox and contrast. We see what's going on in the adult world. You know, it's a mess sometimes out there in the world, chaos and disruption. And then along comes a young person with all that light and ambition, which is really so extremely special, as you all know. And I'm sure some of you starseed parents have children that are that are very much like that. So anyway, I'm going to leave you with those beautiful thoughts. It's going to be a really interesting show tonight. I love my selenite, so it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to learning more about it. Well, cool. Well, thanks yeah. so much for bringing us the starseed news. I, I just I love that that story about a young genius. Um, Isn't and that I, my first thought was, you know what? And he is only one of the first. You know, there are many many more young Absolutely. kids that are going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it tells us that we league. know that there is an emergence of new consciousness coming into the scene. So it's not it's uh, very promising and beautiful. Many people have been saying that for some time, including you and Lavendar. So. Here we go. Yes, yeah, and there they are. And Leela, that's one of Leela's uh, topics too. So, um, right, right in line with the show. Great, great. So we well, will I'll get on to, now. Yeah, I'll talk to all of you next week, and from my heart to yours, uh, have a beautiful, beautiful week. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Anastasia. So um, now I am going to let's see Lavendar. Get your mic open, and Leela. Um, I know you're here someplace. Uh, oh. Okay. Um, okay, here we're, we're going to uh, open your mic. Hey, Leela, apparently um, you were disconnected from the landline, were you? Can you hear me, Leela? Oh, I, I can't, yeah, I guess she was disconnected. Okay, let me just get her back here. Just take a moment here. It's dialing. Hello. 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 Hey, Leela. Hi. Let me, um, let me get your uh, yeah, get that other line off there. So, all right, I think I've got everything um, working now. And uh, and Lavendar, you're online. Everybody's ready to go. I'm here. Okay, great. Well, Lavendar, take it away. Okay. Well, Leela, I'm so happy that you have um, gone into another gear with this book that you have done. I just, I, it, it arrived, and I have been reading on it, and I am so proud of you, girl. This is a, a great little book, and the pictures are excellent. I'm so glad that you added the pictures back into your story. Oh, yeah. I had to, now that it's such a unique and obsolete situation, Lavender, um, they've flooded the case of, as of November of 2015. So now I have some of the rarest, earliest images of these crystal caves in Chihuahua, Mexico. So I knew that it had to be rewritten, and the book is all grown up. It's the second edition. It is now included with rare colored images, and I've also expanded some of the chapters to include all these events that led up. It was a spiritual events that led up into the caves and the journey of the caves. So for those that have not heard you on this show before, why don't you just give a, uh, a brief um, synopsis 
of of your time in in the Crystal Caves and tell us a little bit. I mean, a lot of people know this story, but there's a lot of new people. In fact, we have a lot of people that are born after 1980 that have started listening to our shows. And you know, I I told you some time ago that I was told to put my information in a bank vault and, and wait till the kids were up and grown that were born after 1980. Well, they're showing up now. Oh, that's so what I know. If you that's would fantastic. just go ahead and 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 start at the beginning about how you got down to the caves and what you discovered when you got there. Okay. All right. Well, let's put it this way. All right. I, I was born in the 50s, and I was born in a field of radiation. And this is all part of it. There's all this phenomena, including even the unleashing of the atomic bomb uh, near the nearest town of San Antonio, New Mexico, in the White Sands Missile Range, was really the beginning for me. That's what I was that was the field of energy that I was born into. And as a child I used to play at White Sands um National Park or National Monument, which is the largest sand dunes that are growing that are made out of selenite crystals, very tiny little chips of selenite. And I didn't know it at the time, but that would be my first initiation into this amazing energy of white light. So now we're going to fast forward, and the book is all about these journeys that led me from White Sands into those crystal caves. So in January of 2001, because of my work with the Tatahumara Indians out of Copper Canyon and the service work that I did there, I was invited to go on an expedition. This exploration was to be into something that was extraordinary and had never been on the planet before. It was discovered in April of 2000, and now this is January of 2001. And the invitation came to be part of a government expedition to travel down into these crystal caves and a mine. It was a lead, zinc, and silver mine. So I want to really emphasize that because we're going a thousand feet below the Earth's surface into a mine that had been working for 200 years. And in this mine, there were bubbles inside bedrock that had giant crystals that were up to nearly 40 feet tall. So think of a four-story building, and you're walking into a dark cave, 100% humidity, it's 136 degrees now dropping, so it's probably about 128 because it's been open for eight months into the tunnels that lead into the mine. And it's now it's dark, 100% humidity, and this extreme heat. It's the most hostile environment for a miner to work in in the entire world. So they didn't even know what they had on their hands. And the other thing was they didn't even know how to take photographs. So this government expedition was primarily to get us to go in there to take images. So think about in this extreme heat where you could become unconscious within five minutes. We risked our lives to go in there. We didn't know it at the time. To try to explore within five minutes a chamber that was maybe 2,000 feet wide and long. So that's what we did. We had no idea what we were looking for. We didn't know how far it would go, how deep it would go, how sharp it was, how dangerous it was. And so we went several times in the first cavern, and then we came out, and then we went into the big giant crystal caves the second time. And that is where we saw the first phenomenal pylons that were nearly 40 feet tall and 6 feet wide. They were seriously looking like Superman's 
um, fortress of solitude. So that was the journey. That was the beginning. And when I came out of those crystal caves in January of 2001, my life had changed. It was like a great surge of energy that came into my body. It cooked my cells with that kind of heat. And it forever changed a quest for me to do research. Now, 15 years later, I'm still on the path, have learned so much in so many directions about this, whether it be the goddess energy, whether it be just understanding the crystal planetary grid. And now, which is really interesting, is this portal into the phenomena into the Chihuahuan Desert. So does that give it a pretty good quick synopsis, Lavender? Absolutely. Now, what, what happened with the, in the desert? What, you stopped there. What, I don't know what's happened there. Well, okay. So what happened was, first of all, since I had, you had me on the show back in um, 2014, I spent two months doing research down in Mexico. That's a whole other story. That's part of the grid, the planetary crystal grid that was fascinating and what I found down there. But this part... As I started to research around it, I decided to zero it in to the crystals as, um, and, and moved out from there. So the first thing I want to talk about, and I've got actually my slideshow presentation here. I'm, I'm going to be presenting in a couple of days on the same material about this all this phenomenon. So what we're looking at, it's the zone of silence. Lavender, have you heard of the zone of silence in Mexico? No, I have not. Where is it? All right. It's, it's the southeast of Nica. So let's have everybody, all the listeners, know where this place is, where the crystals are. It's Nica, Chihuahua, Mexico. So let's call that, let's call that ground zero. And southeast of there is what you would call the zone of silence. And... This place is where no radio signals, X-ray signals, satellite signals, television, any type of signals at all can be penetrating in this area that actually kind of moves around. But it stays, it stays basically in this area. If that isn't fascinating enough, that I'm meant there. It- <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Want to go there? <laughs> yeah. I would love to. I would love to go there too. There's all kinds of things that have been sighted there. So people have said, yeah, you know, what I love about Mexico is that they're way more open than, than the United States is to UFOs and to legends and myths and fairies and chucacabras and all kinds of things. So their openness, they, you know, they've sighted like white tall or tall white beings in this area. Wow. Out of, uh, it's really, you guys, Ariel, this is, uh, it's really trippy. So some of the things that have happened in the zone of silence is that out of Utah, I think it was called Green, uh, Green River, it was a missile um, range of the military, and in the 60s they shot a missile Called the um, uh, the Athena rocket. How do you like that? <laughs> the, but you're not going to like the, what they did there. What? This was it was loaded with cobalt 57, and this no. was, yes, 
so this this agenda was to test how to spread the radiation from atomic bombs. Oh. Yeah. So that that was mind blowing. The Athena rocket, and as it was, um, they had hoped that it was going to land in White Sands. That was that was the agenda: take it into space and then have it bomb White Sands. But it went off course and it went into the zone of silence. So they had to go down there and clean it up. Is it cleaned up now? It is. But who knows? I mean, we're talking about this vast area. This Chihuahuan Desert spans not only into Mexico, but parts of Texas and Arizona, a little bit into Arizona and into southern New Mexico. It's massive. It's the largest desert in the world. And it's extraordinary. Now I I understand a whole lot more why these crystals grew in this area. I could say these are geological reasons, but I think there's a lot more reasons to these as well. As you know, you and I have discussed, there's other spiritual implications to these giant transmitters and receivers. But if we're just looking at the 3D, we've got two mountain ranges. We have the Oriental, the Sierra Madre Orientals to the east, and the Sierra Madre um Occidentals to the west. So these two mountain ranges that run kind of in a north, a northwest to a southeast direction, like Mexico is, um, blocks any of the marine layer of air. So there's no moisture that can get over these mountain ranges into this trough, which is this desert. So here lies the first thing: zone of silence. Now here's another interesting thing about this zone of silence. The very first meteor, the Allende meteorite, they called it an intelligent meteorite. Why was it so intelligent? Because the Russians had tracked this meteorite as going around the entire planet, whatever that was. Now, how does a meteorite go around the entire planet and then falls into the zone of silence? Because there's no... (laughs) (laughs) It's just unbelievable. (laughs) So what is this? Well, they found out that what was in this meteorite predated even our sun, our solar system. It was basically the building blocks of the universe. Wow. Yeah. What year did this take place? Um, i got to look at my notes because I just spoke about this at uh, MUFON last month about it. Uh, I think it was also in the 60s was the Allende. Let me see. I have it right here. I'm jumping around. I have my, my slideshow um, with all this information, and I what I wanted to do was go chronologically. But I'm so excited to talk to you about this stuff. And all my friends on Starseed Radio Hotline and... And uh, our group of crystal lovers, and I'm just excited to be here as always. So let's see if I can tell you this. Okay, so it, um, I think it was the 60s, Lavender. Allende is composed of many different types of rock fragments that were assembled together on an asteroid 4.6 billion years ago while our solar system was still forming. 
Minerals, textures, and chemicals and isotopic compositions of the rock fragments contain clues about our early solar system history. The large white fragment is a refractory, refractory inclusion. This is one of the first types of rocks to form in our solar system, and this is the oldest rock type on our planet. So how big was it when it landed, and where is it now? It was all these pieces. In fact, there's still people are still going to try to find these pieces. So it broke up into many, many pieces, and it's there's collectors all over the world that have these. Wow. <laughs> the zone of silence. This is part of an armature. All right. So, see now we're you know now we're connecting. I'm going to build this story, but you know basically what we're talking about here is there's a lot of phenomenon. Maybe this has something to do with it. What are these crystals? Why did they grow here? If they were the largest crystals in the world so far discovered, why is it here? So that's, that's where I start and that's where I end with. All right, so let's, let's see. The next thing I want to talk to you about with the zone, outside of the zone of silence, and this is, um, there's a lot of water. First of all, there's a huge aquifer that started underneath the desert. And it was starting, and you can, well, we know that there's Lake Lucero and Lake Otero in White Sands. This alone um, is a grand indicator of the massive amount of water that is underground. This is what formed those crystals. And some of the things around there are like Carlsbad Caverns. I mean, how many of our listeners or your listeners have been to Carlsbad Caverns? This is the same water. What else did they find? Like into the crystal caves in Nica, they found three different types of bacteria that had never been found on this planet before. They were like off-planet. So what is that doing in there? So these are many, many of the questions um, surrounding this area, these mysteries. Let's see what else I can tell you that uh, I've been finding really fascinating. Let's go to Lloyd Pye. You know about Lloyd Pye and the and the Copper uh, Copper Queen Star Child? Yeah, I do. Go ahead, tell the audience so they may not know. Okay. Well, I'm just going to give a quick background of this. Actually, it was a family that was in a, on an outing in the Copper Canyon area, and this the young girl who was from El Paso had ventured into a, uh, a, like a little cave and found a skeleton, remains of a, a mother, a female, with a baby skeleton laying on top. And some of these bones, I don't know what happened to all of them, but she had the skull. And I don't think Lloyd Pye ever, who is dead now, and this is a remarkable guy about really um, connecting our galactic origins, our extraterrestrial origins, and the DNA of the human. So he got connected to this woman in El Paso, and they gave him the baby skull. And they've done huge amounts over years of DNA testing, and they have definitely identified extraterrestrial DNA. And it's these fibers that are in the bone itself that are is like rebar, like steel rebar. That is has there's you know nothing organic to the human on planet Earth. So are you saying that maybe that there's some kind of uh, technology in their bones? Is that what you're saying? No, I think what he found out was that this. Um, this baby was actually 
um, was, if you can believe this, that both the female ovum and the male sperm were both extraterrestrial and inserted into the vessel of a human mother and gestation. Okay. That's really strange. You know, I think we're going to be finding more and more of the evidence of what you're saying. Yeah, I'm, I think yeah. That this is just. I think that it's being allowed to come out now for some reason. That's right. We're going to find more and more stories like this happening all over the world. I think Russia is going to be uh, coming out with a whole lot of stuff like this pretty soon. Oh, it's I got do a feeling too. about Russia. They seem to be on a very fast track of finding all kinds of things uh, in, involved with extraterrestrials, and there's there's a whole group of scientists and and people in the government that want it to happen, more so than what I can say about our government. <laughs> I agree. So, yeah, I totally so I look agree. to Russia. I think Russia is going to be the the next next place that's going to come out with the proof of extraterrestrial uh, bloodlines and births and and finding more of these bodies. Yeah. 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 So here we go. Um, now here's where. Um, Oh man, there's some. All right, let's go. Let's go to this one. And this is, I think, uh, you had my one of my collaborators, well, the collaborator, with me on this. Another border kid, uh, I call him, is Ruben Uriarty. Yeah, he and, was on our show. Yes, he was. So I'm going to tell the uh, listeners if they didn't hear that show with Ruben um, about his extraordinary research. Um, he's the Northern California director of the Mutual UFO Network. Um, and his chapter is San Jose. And because Ruben was born on the border, and when I reconnected with him last year, we started comparing notes. He didn't know it was me down into the Mexican um, caves, the crystal caves. And so we spent hours and hours and hours of collaborating and comparing our research and realized that that we had both been tracking different things in the Mexican desert, in the Chihuahuan desert. So here's another piece, all right, that really, that really I found amazing. And some people know about this, but I don't think many of us know. But in August of 1974, I believe it was 74, they call it the Koyame Incident. And what happened was there was a very, very fast-flying UFO that was being tracked by our military at U.S. Air Defense Systems. It was going 2,500 miles an hour. It was in the Gulf. And this flying disc or unidentified object, flying object, took a 90-degree turn from Corpus Christi out in the Gulf towards Brownsville. And then it headed into airspace in Mexico. All right, so the Mexican military were tracking it. We were tracking it. And at the same time this was happening, about 10.41 or 10.07 p.m. that night, there was a single-prop plane leaving El Paso, Texas, headed for um, Mexico City. And it was in one of the Mexican air corridors that was, you know, well-traveled, and in the middle of this flight, the disc slammed into 
this airplane. And so they knew, the U.S. knew, and the Mexican military knew that there had been an air crash. Um, that night, so the next day, the Mexican military sent out several of their soldiers, a flatbed truck, to recover all of the debris that happened in Cuyami. Cuyami's near Chihuahua, uh, in the state of Chihuahua, not near Chihuahua City, where so if you if you think about this location, Lavender, it's got you have Chihuahua City, then Delicias, and then southeast of Delicias is Nica, where the Crystal Caves were discovered. But if you head a northeast from there, the Rio Conchos uh, travels as a tributary back into the Rio Grande, and just northeast of Coyami and the Rio Conchos, this is where this explosion happened in. And this crash happened in the desert, in the Chihuahuan Desert. So what happens next is that the U.S. is tracking this. Nine hours later, the Mexican recovery team heads out and to, re- to retrieve the airplane. They don't know it's a UFO. Maybe they do. Nobody's really talking about it. But when they get out there, they realize there is a 1,500-pound disc it's got a couple of dents in it. It it doesn't yeah, fifteen hundred pounds, but there were no bodies, any alien bodies that they could recover. So they while they were getting ready to prepare and take this disc back to somewhere in Mexico, the US government military calls Mexico and say, Can we help you with this? And they declined their assistance. In the meantime, they had their reconnaissance surveillance jets fly out of Texas and Fort Bliss, right where I lived, and to overlook this recovery taking place. And what they found, the U.S. military found, were there was no movement. And all of the Mexican military men, and I don't know if there was like 20 of them or not, they were all dead. So there was two crashes out there that certainly the plane was completely, you know, disseminated, and there was that disc. So they came out with, um, I think, a sea stallion, some uh, three other helicopters, three Hueys with winches to go out there, and they it was a it was a race, and the U.S. government went out there and recovered that disc, and when they went there, they sent men from the military, U.S. military, in hazmat suits. And what they saw, that all these men were dead. And they don't know if it was a biological agent. But they were familiar with this procedure. Isn't that interesting? The U.S. knew exactly what to do, the military. So they stole that that UFO disc out of Mexico, and pro- we don't know if they took it back to Wright Patterson Air Force Base, to Atlanta, to the CDC, or if they took it back to Fort Bliss, maybe for some reverse engineering. What they did next, though, and this is where I don't have all the information, but this is something I've been tracking, is that they took a suitcase bomb, and they had this type of technology back in at that time in the 70s, and they detonated this atomic bomb. And it was only in an area that was very small, and it it blew out everything. So if there was 
some kind of bacteria or some kind of viral thing that killed all those men, this was going to be sure to just blow it all to smithereens, and there was nothing to recover. That's my understanding. In the meantime, I don't know. We don't know. There's a lot more that even Ruben is in still in um, research, deep research with Noe Torres on this subject. Um, and other things have come to light that I can't talk about. But isn't that an interesting situation? Are you there? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I thought I lost you again. I was going to, oh, no. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, how far is that crash site from the from the zone of silence? Um, it's really not that far. I don't think it's that far. I don't even think it's 100 miles. Somehow when you were talking about it, I thought, oh, that play. There was something going on. It was like maybe... Maybe that's one of the reasons the craft was in the area to begin with. Well, that's what I'm wondering. See, now, see, there's some other things coming up. Um, you know, on my on my research to the planetary crystal grid, I started to notice a lot of different things, landmarks and uh, some of this phenomenon, of course. It's like, why did Robert Oppenheimer, you know, detonate the atomic bomb in the White Sands? Not just because it was less populated. Is that just, it can't be the only reason. What was happening there? So I've come across, um, through some research, a book called The Southwest Triangle Theory. And basically this guy named Andrew Owen wrote a book and took an area like an isosceles triangle about all this different phenomena. I can't get into all those details, but when he went to research into the Guadalupe Mountains and the Roswell incident, and by the way, the Koyami incident is called Mexico's Roswell, and Ruben Uriarte and Noe Torres wrote this book about this um, UFO incident. And after that, and especially in the 90s, things really took off in Mexico. There were more and more people reporting all kinds of UFO incidences and strange anomalies. So... This in this Roswell in the Guadalupe Mountains. Now, we're talking. By the way, Coyami is just on the other side in the Mexico to Presidio, Texas. So, if that'll help the listeners know the location we're talking about, and I just want to briefly touch on this because this isn't really all everything I've researched. I've been on another area which is about giant bones, but this particular one is. There's been a lot of sightings. Of strange lights. Have you heard of the Marfa lights? Oh yeah, Lavender? I've seen them. I've seen the Marfa. Oh, lights. tell me about it. Tell me what have you seen? Well, it, we we went out one night and um, they just come. They blink like like uh, lightning bugs, except except they're brighter and they and then they just disappear. They they don't fly off anywhere. They just dissolve in the same spot. Okay, see, now this is what, this makes sense to me from what I'm studying. Could it possibly be a landing strip for UFOs, for spacecraft to go underground? Yes, it could be. That's what I'm thinking, too. Because the the lights come, and then then they just go out. They don't go in it. You don't don't follow them into space anywhere. They, They come on, they travel around, they go back and forth, and then they just blink out and they're gone yeah 
yeah, like plasma. There, you know, there's a good possibility, and we've, we, there's, you know, Linda Moulton Howe. There's a lot of people of, you know, have, and Anthony Sanchez, other people about, you know, this discussion of underground bases. So, yeah. what if, what if these Guadalupe Mountains in this whole area? And this is what you know, my research is leading to. What if there is something underground? What if there's a huge ET UFO base? Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I mean that's probably very likely. Look, look at all the combination of things that are around there to to let you know that. That's what I'm thinking too. Like, and I think so many clues. So many clues, and I think I've got. I mean, the beauty and the love I have for selenite. This pure white light, it's like this selenite has the ability to, it can't hold a program. That I know. It doesn't hold a program. It just perpetuates this, you know, it's like a clean white light. That's why it's such a beauty to work with, with energy. And, you know, all the hands-on healing that I do and the crystal stuff that I do. And I know so many of us and the listeners love selenite. And it's think that maybe it's on a slide of light a dimensional um it it it's it's not so much for the 3d world it's for other dimensions don't you think something's up some yes i do and and i'm i'm going to be writing my second book about 15 years of my research definitely and some of the things i'm talking about today would are going to be included in this but let's move on to something else that's really blown my mind okay so Let's talk about Copper Canyon. Copper Canyon is deeper than the Grand Canyon. Really? In, yeah, that's how big it is. And it's seven canyon systems, Lavender, with uh, the, the Rio Fuerte, the strong river that runs through it. Okay? And I've been, I have been in a four-wheel drive truck from the Mesas, um, where Creel is in, down into Baropilas, down at the bottom of Grand uh, of the uh, Copper Canyon. There's also the longest falls in North America are the Basa Siachik Falls. They're longer than Niagara, out of New York. So that's it's a beautiful. I mean, you know, the beauty there is incredible, and it's very stark, and the Extraordinary Tarahumara Indians, all right? These are the longest endurance runners in the world, okay? I mean, these guys can run, you know, they, they can run a distance where they can, a deer, they can run a deer down to exhaustion. They can run 100, they can run like 50 to 60 hours at a time. That's how strong they are. And they start when they're children, so what's in the DNA of these Tarahumara? And they believe that these Tarahumara are the first people of Mexico. All right? And first people. Very, very ancient. They came there. And who could be connected to that could be the Comanches and the Apaches. All right, so now we're talking about Copper Canyon. So Copper Canyon attracted the Spaniards because of silver and just like Nica, right, which is, is part of the Sierra Tarahumadra Madre. So the Tarahumara Sierra Madre is what they call that, is where Nica is. It's on the it's it's at the base 
of the Sierra Madres and the beginning of those to the west. And we're looking at precious metals, copper, silver, some gold, and there's mining tunnels everywhere. So in the 1800s, just outside of Creel, where that was the mesa, as you went down into and down into the canyon, they discovered giant bones in a cave. Okay, I mean we're talking probably 10 to 12 feet tall. These giants, and what has found has been found out by people who've been researching. Um, I think like right at the turn of the century. In the 1880s, are you still there? I'm here. Yeah. Okay. All right, because there's something funny happening with my phone. I want to make sure. He was told about a legend of a race of giants as big as pine trees. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. That had occupied the canyon country when the Tarahumara arrived. The giants ate the Tarahumara children and ravished the women. At last, the people exterminated giants by tricking them into eating a mixture of corn and poisonous extract from the Chilicote tree. So this, on, on the heights once lived giants. They were as big as pine trees and had heads as big as boulders. They taught the Tarahumaras how to plant corn by cutting down trees and burning them, but they ate the children. A woman bore a giant in a cave which was situated very high on the side of a valley, and she died because the child was so large, and he was taken care of by his grandmother. So there's stories like this all over. The Tarahumara didn't like these guys, but they taught them how to plant corn. They were giants, and they found these bones right outside of Creel in these caves. All right, and I have, it's on my, um, people go to my Facebook, it's, Facebook slash Nika Caves, they'll see a story about this, and they can read it. Because, you know, back in the 1920s, the 1800s, late 1800s in the newspapers, they didn't censor any of this. They put it, you know, now you can't find any of this kind of stuff. So it's, it's there of some of these early explorers that went down into Copper Canyon, and they saw these bones. So that's that's another one. Um, the next one would be, it's a little outside of Chihuahua, but it's called Onavas, Sonora, Mexico. And near a cemetery, near a uh, a river, they found giant bones and elongated heads. Okay, And their ocular sockets are not anything like a human's. And their skulls are as long as they are as the Egyptian pharaohs that we've seen. And they've done tests on these things. They are not human DNA. These are, these are total ET, strange DNA that are not part of a human. So this has just been blowing my mind about Mexico. And I think this is happening all over the world. I mean, they've found giant bones everywhere. Wow. There's more and more going to be happening with all of this. It's time that, that all this is, is coming out about everything. About everything. About everything. I mean, so many ET experiments have been running on the planet, but now they've upped everything.
the upgrades, and it's like they turn the volume up and, and let them all fly at once to see which ones will remain standing when it's over. That's what we're experiencing right now with the election, with people's health, with, with uh, you know, the, the um, extreme measures taken now with um, chemtrails, <laughs> all kinds of everything's being allowed to go to the max to see what's, what's going to be left of our planet and its people. Who's going who's gonna to be left standing tall in their power, or are you going to be giving it away to the cabal or to the people that, that own you? In other words, yeah. The thing is, you know, it's like, where where are you standing in your spirit right now when you're observing what's happening around you, and are you partaking of it? Or are you standing really still and just observing it? Good point. Yeah. So go ahead. Um, I want to share one other uh, story. This is kind of mind blowing too. In Mexico, 34 ancient blonde giants, some mummies some skeletons, two of them women, all 7.5 to 8 feet tall, were found in a cave 7,000 feet in the Copper Canyon area, 90 miles from the mountains of Alamosa, Sonora, according to a 1950 newspaper. And they, at, when they got, they dug below, this guy had been hearing about it from the Tarahumara Indians. You know, this all becomes myth and legends, but they're really not myth and legends. And so he he wanted he ventured into Copper Canyon, and he dug below the volcanic the volcanic volcanic ash. And what he found was fascinating was that these mummies were wearing saffron colored robes with powder blue hooks that um, resembled little pyramids and dots totaling over twenty five thousand on each robe. And what do you think of that? Does that sound like Lemuria? What is that? Who were these ancient uh, navigating people? (laughs) I don't even know what to think of this. Well, it's just it's (laughs) well, it's it's about that our world is older than we were told it was. Okay. Correct. For our forbidden history. Yeah. Our forbidden history. Now, are you planning on taking any groups to Mexico for any reason? I am. I am actually, what I'm going to do is I'm not taking, it's not safe. It's not safe. I don't want to, some people might argue with me about that, and I don't want to, uh, I would never want to jeopardize anybody's life. But until I know that it could be totally safe, I wouldn't take them into Mexico, but I definitely am going to take a group into New Mexico and probably into um, possibly into um, maybe into the eastern part of Chihuahua Desert, like by Koyami. Maybe do that. Yeah. Um, but I'm definitely going to take them to southern New Mexico and start there because there's just there's so much on these lines. It's just it's just it's a fascinating area. Roswell alone opened up so much. But, you know, we can take the Marfa Lights. We can take the Mothman conspiracies. They've seen that also. They're on the border in the Chihuahuan Desert. And what do you know? I don't know much about the Mothman, but people have said they've sighted, you know, like a being in front of them at night with these red eyes that look like they had two wings like a moth. Yeah. With I a moth face. a lot of places, I think. I wanted to ask you, Leela, 
do you have a, a copy of J.J. Hertek's book, Keys of Enoch? You know, I did somewhere. What are you, what are you recommending? Remembered that they had a picture of the dove over uh, the United States and Mexico. I sure do. Brains and the, 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 the pineal was sitting in Mexico oh on the picture. And when you were talking about this, I thought, oh, the heart of the dove is New Mexico, but the brains are in Mexico on that picture. Well, that it, that's interesting. There's also a guy named uh, David Miller, the um, the Group of Forty. This guy's uh, I think he channels Arcturians, but he says he says that there's these cities of light, and he's named Copper Canyon as one of the cities of light. Wow. Huh. So you've got these strange Tarahumara that have a DNA that's beyond. It's just almost beyond explanation. The endurance runners. These guys can. I mean. What they can do is beyond anything. I've seen them run. In fact, I crewed for a race, and it's in the book. If you, if you, I forgot what chapter it is, but I explain how we brought the Tarahumara to the United States. They'd never seen the Copper Canyon. And it was a relay race, and they were on the North Rim. And I remember I, I was the scout. I had a little silver car, and it was my job to make sure that the path was clear for this relay race from Utah to Mexico. And there were 15 or 14 uh, runners, including five Tarahumara. And we did this because we wanted to bring uh, publicity to them so that we could have people donate money to help them in their villages down in Copper Canyon because their attrition rate was nearly 50% of their children. And that's how, that's how, because of no rain and little food, little corn that was grown, so the babies were dying. So we were giving them food assistance uh, with the Rancho Feliz organization and others. So this is what this race was all about, to bring that kind of notoriety to um, Rancho Feliz and to the Tarahumara Indians. And these guys thought that they were going to have to run the entire thousand miles from utah to mexico down by agua prieta mexico the entire race and they were fine with it (laughs) (laughs) they were like okay and then when we took them to see the 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 grand canyon they were you know they were fascinated with all the red rock i mean even the grand canyon's got the mysteries in there are just i wrote about that in my book as well with kincaid g.e kincaid who reported the smithsonian and how they found um you know, uh, the, like in the Temple of Isis, they found all these strange Egyptian artifacts deep in a cave, and now you can't even get to the access to any of the north side and the north rim other than the trail. So these guys looked at, you know, I, I couldn't wait to see their face, and it was snowing. It was starting to hail a little bit with really cold rain, and they wear these little sandals and these, um, uh, what do you call it, burlap type, not burlap, um, like a gunny sack. Um, they're, not, they're like shorts, but they're not. They're like, I don't know, they're like a cloth that you look like, it looks like a diaper that they wear with these, their, their legs are so strong, they're like tree trunks. And these guys, I think, ran from the north rim to the south. That means 12 miles down to the Rio Grande and then another 11 miles up to the south rim, and I think they did that in less than five hours. Oh, my goodness. They're extraordinary. Okay. I wonder why somebody hasn't picked a couple of them up to put them in the 
in the Olympics. Well, they have. They have. There's some stuff that's a really good question. They did they did the Leadville 100 and the Los Angeles Crest races in the 90s. But anytime you're going to bring, you know, a, a unique race of people out of their own environment, there's a lot of exploitation, and yeah. there was problems. There yeah. were problems, and um, they didn't like it. I mean, really, these guys would stop at one of the stations, you know, for water, but they would just smoke a cigarette and then keep running. <laughs> yeah, they're outrageous, Lavender. They're just, yeah, they're amazing. And they are, what are they? What are they? They're the, who are their, their ancestors, right? Yeah, I'd like to know more, but, you know, as you're talking, I'd, I'd like to, to see our star seeds eventually in the future to raise some money and send money down to help these people. Well, I'll tell you, I'd love that. I would, I would, I would love that. And, I, you know, there's, we can definitely do that through um, Rancho Feliz. There's, there's, to help these Tarahumara would be amazing. I don't know where it's, you know, again, because Mexico isn't that safe, um, because of the, all the drug cartel, you know, it's, it's hard to get. I don't have that kind of information, but it can be done, and there are groups that do that. They're definitely. I'm sure they're kind of like church groups and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, that's, um, that's that's a that's a bloodline that we we definitely need to be tracking, and and we need to help them. We need to help them. That's all. That's it. That's, That's it. it. They're they're really amazing. And then you know there's there's the there's kind of the pure bloodline, and then the ones that National Geographic when they did this um, edition in October 2010 in um, City of Lights, I think it was called their uh, or the Nightlight Nightlights um, uh, edition, October of 2010. They talked about a race of vanishing people. Yeah, the race of vanishing people. It was quite extraordinary about it because there's two types. There's t- the type that live in the, uh, the, you know, in the towns, and the, you know, the ones that live in the village. They don't really want to have anything to do with them. You know, they don't, they don't keep the customs and the traditions. So yeah. they've kind of separated out. Yeah. But they're hard to get to know. These people are. I was there in 1997 with them and, and stayed with them for a couple of days and and uh, up on the mesa and. Uh, they don't, and then after that was after we had the races up in um, Utah and Arizona. It was a really extraordinary time. <clears throat> a lot of interesting things happened. Let's see what else I could tell you. We have the Marfa lights. We have the the runway um, that we've seen with these Marfa lights. We think there's you know that possibility. Uh, the, the Mothman conspiracies, the Allende uh, meteorite, the Athena rocket. The Zone of Silence, uh, the Tarahumara Indians, the giant bones that have been found in caves and in mines, and there's a there was another story, and this starts to relate to Bigfoot. <laughs> they call it the Chihuahua Mine Ghost, but um, um, you know I don't know how much you've been tracking Bigfoot, Lavender, but um, a little bit. I see things at different times, and I'll watch you know different. Um, um, Discovery programs, yeah. Well, <clears throat> I don't believe, from everything that I've been studying about it, that these are really friendly guys. <laughs> that. Um, well, I've that, always known that they're ET experiments that they placed on the planet. That's what I've known. Yes, I agree with you. 
So, but I don't know how friendly they are. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't think they're friendly. There's a there's a man by the name of David Politis, who has written books called the 411. I think it's called about all the disappearance of people in the national parks. Maybe even Anastasia has talked about that. I don't know. Well, um, I know I have a friend up in the Tetons that tells me about people that are wearing orange um, shirts or orange colors. They go they go disappearing up there in the Tetons. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I'm talking about. And this is the 100-year anniversary of the national park system. But I'll tell you something. You can't, from what David Politis has said like on um, on Coast to Coast in his interviews, you can't get clear information from the National Park Service about missing people. And I think he's tracked maybe over 45,000 missing people. Wow. wow. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Okay, and a lot of times what has happened, they have find the clothes neatly folded up, or maybe they'll find a shoe, and then two miles later they'll find the other shoe. You know, there's just, you know, or like a father and son will be hiking, and the son will disappear right behind him, never to be found again. Huh. So there's a lot of cover-up uh, with the Park Service. But, again, this could be, you know, we're talking about possibly extraterrestrial bases underground that this may be the convenience of these national parks are covering up. Oh, have you, uh, Leela, have you heard about the missing people in Arkansas? No, tell me about that one. don't remember the number, but it's so outrageous. I mean, it's like over 400 people have, have disappeared, and no one's even looking for them. Well, <laughs> Now we can talk about Clinton Cash, couldn't we, and to all the people that have died in the Talamena Ridge area, right? Mena. Yeah. You know, my my father was born and raised in um, Arkansas, and he used to tell me, he said, you could go missing, you, nobody would ever find you in that in that forest. It's just, it's so it's so thick and lush, you just, you know, they wouldn't find you. But, see, I'm wondering if there's some underground caverns or something there because of the crystals, that maybe there's a possibility for some of this to be covering up these people that are disappearing. Well, we've also learned from several sources about underground tunnels that came all the way from Atlantis to Arkansas. Oh, I believe that. I believe that. I really do think um, this. it was a seeding of baby crystals, so to speak, you know, that these that they had massive growth crystals that were happening um, in Arkansas that they used for technology, the crystal technologies in Atlantis. Right. It, it's just too strange of an anomaly. I mean, look at the United States, and all of a sudden you look at Arkansas, and here's this largest strata yeah. of crystal, silica yeah, dioxide. Long, yeah, of, yeah, absolutely. Doesn't make any sense, and then and then see, so this is all part of that planetary crystal grid research that I've done. If you yeah. went straight east from NICA, you'd end up in Sarasota, Florida, on that same parallel. And what's Sarasota, Florida? You tell me. It's what oh, it's is a place where I went and spent a year, and also there's a Chris, there's crystal um, sand right there at. Um, uh, at the beach. Yeah, the Siesta Key Beach, and it's 99.9% pure quartz crystal sand. And we have it, that in, on the island of Aruba, too. 
Yes, you do. That's right. So we're tracking this stuff. So if you even take this parallel, so you've got pure quartz crystal. I've got pictures that look like snow. We've had groups where I've done grid work out there on Siesta Key Beach in 2014 and, and uh, 15. Um, on that beach, and it looks like, and it is wintertime, but we're barefoot and on the beach, but it's pure, pure, brilliant white sand, yeah. except it's quartz, not selenite. Yeah. Right. It's and then what's on the other side of that close to the same parallel is Cape Canaveral. Right. Right. Launching rockets that go in a east west direction where Lompoc, California launches rockets in a north south direction. Yeah. On the planet. Interesting stuff. I can't wait to see your next book you're going to write because I can tell you're going to write one. I'm looking at the time, so I need to, at this time, pass you over to Ariel who has the switchboard if there's anyone that wants to call in and comment or ask you a question. And um, so at this time, I would, Ariel, are you there? Yes. Okay. So, Leela, we'll talk later. We've loved having you on the show, and anytime you want to come back, you let us know. We'd love to have you come on and tell us more stories. Okay. So back to you, Ariel. Love you, Lavender. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Well, um, at this time, if anyone has a question or comment for Leela, if you're already on the switchboard, then all you need to do is press 1 so that we know you have a question. If you are listening on the computer, then you'll need to dial 917-889-8292, and then once you're in, press 1. And... um, that's a, a process that will take a few minutes. Um, so is there um, something else that you wanted to talk about while we're waiting to see if we have any sure, let's, questions? Um, yeah, I um, I would like to share about uh, some up-and-coming speaking engagements that I have. And um, there was uh, actually some questions I had. Uh, I might have um, – I don't know if you have those with you. Probably Lavender had them. But um, – I wanted to uh, share that I'm going to be, I'm real excited about this. I'll be speaking at the Institute of Noetic Sciences in um, Petaluma on Thursday night to, um, it's it's Edgar Mitchell. He was an astronaut. I don't know if you know um, of about ions, um, Ariel, but it's, um, it's a place to expand and to explore consciousness and um, his his own stories about, um, the spirituality and beings in space when he was a when he was an astronaut and his research and then he has people um, oh there's just many many workshops and platforms there but I'm going to be speaking there Thursday night and I'm thrilled about it I'm going to actually bring in all of this paranormal information about Chihuahua because this the UFO disclosure is becoming such a big deal. With ExoPolitics, uh, Dr. Michael Sala, who is a professor and really one of the originators of this word, ExoPolitics, is coming to do a workshop uh, and conference here in the Bay Area on Sunday. And um, I really believe that we're getting very close to some kind of disclosure. So that's kind of what uh, I'm excited about. And then teaching in Denver in November at the First Spiritual Church, uh, the second week in uh, November, and um, 
we're just working on my second book and doing my research. I think that's what I really wanted to share. That's what's next for me. And and then as far as research goes, um, my next place to go is really I want to get into the Baja, Mexico, and continue the research on the crystal grid is what I call it, which is an equidistant cross working from NICA being the center. Well, excellent. I remember at the um, at the beginning of the show you said that um, – that the the Nika caves have been flooded now. They are the, as of November 2015. So, and why did they do that? All right, um, it's money. There are turbine engines that uh, are pumps that pump the water out because that massive aquifer that I discussed earlier is mm-hmm. constantly flooding and receding uh, the mine, and the mine goes down to about 2,500 feet. And so if they didn't pump the water out, it would just continue to flood. But once there is no, there's not a, a amount of, a good amount of material or deposits of lead, zinc, or silver, um, they're generating a huge amount of expense about to the tune of about a half a million a month to run those turbine engines to, to uh, pump the water out of the, the mine. So it just became a matter of economics, is my understanding, and that's why they let them flood, because they only kept it at bay so that they could uh, extract the minerals. And I don't think there's any minerals left in that particular part. That's a 200-year-old working mine. I mean, eventually it's got to get tapped out. I'm not saying it is tapped out, but... It, you know, how much can you extract? It's one of the pr- most prolific silver mines in the country of Mexico, and that's saying a lot because, you know, Mexico is really known for a prolific amount of minerals. I mean, that's their geology, and uh, you know, it's just and minerals are amazing. Hmm. And what happens to the selenite when it's underwater? It goes back. If, I'm sure that if it goes back to its original 136 degrees where they first formed, they'll go back into a liquid state, possibly. Because you know, and selenite will dissolve in the right conditions. It's a two on the Mohs scale, so it's very, very soft. It's just a little harder than talcum powder. So, if these have been a a, a major uh, power generator, and by letting it flood um, forever out of that, our reach. That, well, yeah. I mean, how does that? I, I mean, wondering how that affects the crystal grid. If you know some main batteries are um, dissolved. Well, they won't dissolve. It'll. T- it took over a million years to grow them at that length. That and you know to that forty forty feet tall. Oh, so you think it's going to take eons for them to dissolve? I do. Okay. Well, that's kind of good news. Yeah, that is. <laughs> <laughs> and they can't get exploited anymore, right? <laughs> so I think what they oh. did is they tapped it out. They tapped out all the, not only just the expense, but all the information they could. They, you know, the scientists, everything, they, they, they just squeezed it for everything they could get out of it from understanding um, astrobiology biology, you know, new bacteria to, you know, at one time they found that there was, in hydros, bubbles inside those crystals that were 
had pollen, that tree pollen that was over 30,000 years old, Ariel. Oh, my gosh. So we know that that was a forest above those crystals 30,000 years ago. Wow. So they have have a lot of information. The crystals? Yeah, no, I mean the the scientists that went in there. The scientists, okay, yeah. They had. I think they've gotten everything they want. They wanted to out of that. But again, it wasn't their decision. It's really Panola's mining company that decided to flood it. And I'm sure it's just it's just a matter of economics. It's just money. Right, right. Well, it it's so wonderful that you had a chance to to see them, to photograph them, and and to write about them, even if. You know they're no longer accessible. Um, no one can ever change what you've done, and I think it's wonderful. Thank you. I would like to to also mention too that people can find my book on Amazon under my name, Leela Hutchison. They can just Google that, and I think maybe you might even written something about that, or even on my website. I'm having a little problems with my PayPal button, but um, they'll see. They can. The link should be live for Amazon, and they can go there or on my Facebook pages as a author or as a as the book itself. They can click on those links and be able to go directly to Amazon and purchase the book. With those new colored photos, it's um, it's a very rare experience for sure. Well, yeah, and they're irreplaceable. They are. <laughs> yeah, because you, I mean, it's just not there anymore. So um, you, I would like to repeat that if anyone has a, a question or comment for Leela, you need to press 1 on your keypad if you're already on the switchboard. And um, if you're listening on the computer, then dial 917-889-8292. And then once you're in, press 1. So um, we'll give them a, a few more minutes um, before we wrap it up. But... Yeah, I do want to um, reiterate here that your your website is thecrystalgiants.com and your um, Facebook pages are um, Nika Caves, N-A-I-C-A Caves, and Giant Crystals of Mexico. So those are the places where you can find Leela, her research, her books. Um, your speaking schedule, I'm sure, is on your website. It is. Well, it's on. It's actually on my Facebook. I think it's a. I'm learning that that's a pretty good place for uh, social media to 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 generate um, new information very quickly. Great. And and you're currently in the in the San Francisco area. I'm in the Valley of the Moon. This is Sonoma, California. That's what the Indians. Sonoma means Valley of the Moon. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, because yeah, you said you were speaking. You said you were speaking on Thursday at at the Bay City, so I assume that was San Francisco. No, yeah, Petaluma, Petaluma, California, which is the um, it's the campus for Institute of Noetic Sciences. And that's so, where you're speaking. Yeah, that's just yeah. It's about uh, thirty miles to the west of me. Okay. Here in Northern California. All right. Um. Well, it looks like we've got... It's okay. Okay, we, yeah, I'm, I'm looking. We do have um, 
a caller with a question, and, and here comes another one. <laughs> Sometimes it, it takes a few minutes for them to come around. So uh, we are going to first talk to Edmund. So let me get your mic open. Hey, Edmund, you are on the air with Leela Hutchison. Go ahead with your question. Hello, Leela. Edmund, how are you? What a, what a great surprise. Well, thank you for letting me know that you were on today. I wanted to take the opportunity to get a lot of information about you and what you're doing all at one time. Uh, and I certainly succeeded in that. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. My, my particular I have a little bit of a reverb here, so I'm going to have to ignore that. It's been through the entire broadcast. It's repeating the oh, conversation behind us. Yes. How's things well, in I'm Florida? Are you are you calling from Florida? Is that where you are? I am. I am indeed calling from Florida. Just post Hurricane Matthew, which is another you know incredible odyssey of experience. We could talk about that for a moment if you'd like. Uh, since since I had the opportunity to do a lot of research on it. It's up to our moderator. It's up to Ariel. I don't know our timing. Uh, we might just better get state of the question, Edmund, and go from there. Right. Well, I, I noted your concern about Bigfoot and Sasquatch as being not so friendly. And I think, I think the uh, since I'm an avid Sasquatch Bigfoot researcher and I'm actually in touch with some of the people who are doing the most advanced field research with Bigfoot in terms of actually communicating with them, which are only a handful or less than a handful of people that are actually regularly communicating. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, what, for whatever it's worth, what I've learned is that they're, they're much like other people. And by that I mean that they are, first and foremost, people, which is a shocking reality for most humans to realize that they're actually people. Hmm. That's the first thing to ponder and consider. And much like people, there are good ones and there are not so good ones. So we don't expect them to be like bears or like, you know, cougars. They all have the same behavior because they're not animals. They're, they're human. They're humans, humanoids, they have, you know, they have awareness, they're self, they're sentient, they're quite conscious, quite intelligent, and uh, they do communicate, and they are capable of, of very roughly c communicating even in English once they learn it. So there's a couple of people who are actually speaking with them at a distance and uh, having those kind of communications with them. So I just wanted to convey that idea. However, I would still, you know, concur with you regarding the disappearances of the national forest. I, too, have listened to all of that research, and it's very clear that there's any number of forces uh, removing people from national forests, and they're deliberately not tracking that. That is absolutely true. So the National Forest does not want that kind you mean of the PR. National Parks. You mean the National I'm, Park I'm Service? Sorry. Yeah, National Forest Service, Park Service, yes. Okay. They certainly don't want that kind of PR, and they, they know deliberately that they're not tracking it for very conscious reasons. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a real concern for people who are going there. 
Yeah, I think that's the message we want to definitely convey to our listeners out there is that if you are going to go camping or hiking in the National Park Service, make sure that people know where you are and, um, you know, be careful. Keep an eye out. that That issue with the children disappearing right in literally in the presence of their parents is absolutely true as well when you understand their sixth sense and their capabilities are well beyond the human range of the five senses. So there is that issue as well. I think I think there's other uh, satanic human groups involved with a lot of those disappearances as well. It's a great place to uh, to to harvest human beings without being noticed. Mm-hmm. So there's also the human element involved as well. I certainly want to be on your list for the trip for um, New Mexico, for southern New, New, New Mexico. Mexico. Oh, I think it would be. Yeah. And you know what I like about the area is that it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be super expensive because it's not like having to fly to Hawaii, <laughs> flying into Albuquerque, which is uh, it can be affordable right. to a lot more people. That's a great idea, and there might be the possibility. You might want to entertain this idea of possibly. Uh, asking um, Timothy Wiley if he might like to, you know, uh, give a guest appearance to the group to give it a little bit more flavor and perspective. Who is he, he Edmund? Timothy uh, Wiley? Yes, Timothy Wiley is a prolific researcher and consciousness uh, maven. I don't even know how to describe him. He He's written a, a, a number of books. Uh, the latest is a series of eight books, uh, all of which are Urantia book-based, and they're about the rebel angels and what's going on on the planet mm. currently with the alien connections. Yeah. Yeah. He's the gentleman that wrote the very first book in the whole field. I think mm. it was called uh, Dolphins, Angels, and UFOs or something like that. Okay. Many decades ago, I'll check ago. it out. I'll check yeah, it out. Check it out. Um, uh, our our mutual friend Byron Belitzos knows him very well. Okay, so Timothy he would Wiley. be able to. Yes, okay. he would be able to arrange that for the New Mexico visit. That would be really cool to have put that dimension into it. And um, you know, okay. could you tell us what what you would like to explore in that southernmost part of New Mexico? Oh. Um, what I would like to explore, oh, absolutely. It would be uh, not so much of trying to, to tell people about the information, but to actually experience the energies on the land, absolutely. Um, uh. And that would be something that um, there are a number of locations that I feel like the energies are really um, very potent and would give a greater and deeper understanding. And also being of some planetary service, uh, in certain areas that would help with um, uh, a common intent, a spiritual intention of the group Beautiful. coming together, and to Beautiful. just just to heal heal the earth and all of that radiation in that area um, that has done so much so much damage uh, to Mother Earth, and the healing that needs to be there, and the forgiveness that needs to take place with the humans that caused all of that horrible destruction on humanity and it was all created right there right 
Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, by the way, if uh, you ever come across, I've come across some people in New Mexico who have lived there a little too long and have radiation poisoning just because they're particularly sensitive. And uh, some people get more of it faster than others. But I, I do have some extraordinary protocols to get rid of all that. Okay. Before it uh, right. wreaks its damage. So keep that in mind. Always. I will and definitely keep that in mind, and I appreciate you calling. My pleasure. So glad to uh, have a chance to connect with you. Yeah, Good you night, too. Now. I think there's another caller coming on. Ariel? Yes. 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 Okay, uh-huh. wonderful. Edmund, thank you for calling in. I appreciate it, and be well, my friend. Likewise. Thanks so much, Edmund. Bye bye. My pleasure. Bye bye. So um, within the last couple of months, uh, Timothy Wiley has been a guest on our show. So you might want oh. to uh, take a look take a look in our archives. Okay, and, wonderful. Uh, yeah, I, I I think it's been within the last two months, re- quite recently. Okay. So um, our next and final caller is Michael, and I'm going to get your mic open just a second. Come on, clicker. Okay. Hi, Michael. You are on the air with Leela. Hi, Ariel. Hi, Leela. It's nice to meet you. Hello, um, Michael. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you. It sounds like you guys are doing well, too. Thank you for uh, thank you for uh, your time and sharing what you've shared. It's been fascinating. So, um, thank you. I just, one thing uh, that Edmund mentioned, you know, adding more to the Bigfoot thing, I just thought I'd mention that, um, and I apologize, I came on late to the show, so you might have mentioned this, but there's a, a book series called The Law of One, and in that I remember reading um, a little bit about Earth's history, and they do touch on the, the Bigfoot um, in there, so people can kind of get a little bit more background on what led to their the experiment, so to speak. So, um, right. so I thought I'd share that. Um, I'm sure all you are familiar with that. But, I um, I am yeah definitely yeah. with the the experiments out of Atlantis with it, it yes yeah so but my question was I um I have a very strong affinity for crystals and I'm just starting to get a lot more into them and um I came across a, a certain type of quartz crystal Vogel Phi crystals and they are calling me but they're very expensive and. I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts. I don't know if you're familiar with them. And oh, I am. I'm definitely. All yeah. right. I would love to talk to you about this. As a graduate gemologist, I, w- I want to talk to you about a certain things, and that is, uh-huh. first of all, the authenticating of a real Vogel cutter, right, instead of an imitator. So that's yeah. really, really important for you to source out. And I would say that to any of your listeners, too, is that, Please, please be careful. There are plenty of replicators in Mexico and Brazil and uh, that can fashion a Vogel-type-like crystal uh-huh. by putting the facets in it, um, whether it's 18 or 33 or 99, whatever it is. Yep. It just, it's, they're, very, they're very, very expensive. It could be a lab-grown crystal. You don't even know. They call it optical quartz, but I'll tell you, those are those are rare to get an optical quartz uh-huh. clear. There's a, there was uh-huh. a mine in Arkansas called the McGurl Mine, and they're flooded now, and it was 
one of the few places in the extraordinary quartz crystals that were that were optical clear and they were natural so a lot of times you can't tell the difference between a a lab grown quartz crystal or a organic but i can tell you if it was organic and it was natural it was it's very expensive so that's yeah. one thing then you have a cutter who pretends to be a uh, you know, studied under the mastership of Marcel Vogel, and that's not true. So you have to know your source. You need to know the source of the material, and you need to know the source of the cutter before you buy this Vogel crystal because they're extremely expensive. I know people that have spent up to $10,000 on one Vogel well, crystal. That's the price I've seen for one of these, yeah, where I was looking, so... Oh, what, how many real. facets was it, Michael? I don't remember off the top of my head, um, but, you know, I think this one in particular, it was it was larger in size, too. So it had, like, I mean, it might have been 144. Um, yeah. Right. And, you know, and I think it was very big. And, you know, these are supposed to be optical quartz. So it sounds like just even if you just had, like, a naturally formed optical quartz, that would be very rare and powerful. But then to have it in a Vogel 5, five form is even more powerful, it seems. Um, so, yeah, I think it was the 144 Merlin, I, wanted, I think it was called. I don't know okay. if Merlin. Yeah. Well, if you can get, um, if you can get a cert, I, we call them certs in, 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 in my industry, but a certificate of, of authenticity. Okay. If you can find something like that and say, look, you know, before I pay this money, I need to know the source of the cutter. I re- you, know, you know, if you can, try to meet them. Find out yeah. who it is, where they're from, and meet that person who cut it. Wow. Okay. I'm looking. I'm looking at this website as you're talking, and I just came came across a line where they're describing it. And it says, "Certified genuine optical clear Vogel crystals are precision instruments for the savants." And you know, so they're claiming that these are genuine optical clear. Um, but yeah, but yeah, find uh, out if the material is natural or uh, if it's la- a lab grown. Yeah. Okay. I will do that. Definitely. Yeah. This is uh, this is exciting. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Good luck to you on that. All right. Thank you for everything too. It's wonderful. All right, Michael. Be well. All right. All right. Okay. Thanks. And um, Michael, you're going to be with us um, next month in Arkansas. Uh-huh. And yes. um, oh, have fun! Oh, <laughs> you're yeah, going to be yeah, on a crystal Michael. dig. Yeah. Michael's coming to our Starseed Quest um, on Pleiadian lineup, oh. and um, by the Lucky way, the group you. is already full. Um, and Michael, you're going to you're going to find some crystals that will completely um, f- fulfill uh-huh. your your wildest dreams, and uh, and they'll be free. <laughs> yeah, they'll yeah. be free, and you don't have to buy a, a Marcel Vogel crystal, not unless you want to, of course. Yeah, well, that, thank you, Ariel. Now I feel like I can kind of take a break on the Vogel and see what I get in Arkansas. Maybe that'll, that's the place. So, wonderful. Well, you, there are yeah. some beautiful crystals that are very water clear uh, that you can find. So You know, I, I have a feeling I'm going to find some. Why went on? I, Michael, I just, I'm so excited that you called. I just want you to know that um, I was part of the very first Starseed Crystal Quest that happened in October ah. of 2012. Wow, and that must have been powerful. It, we had a wonderful time, didn't we, Ariel? I know you've been on plenty oh. of these. 
but oh it was, yeah, but um, you know what? The first one was so special. Um, you know, we've had a lot of great groups, but the first one is always, you know, as special as like your first love. You just yeah. have a special place in our hearts. But oh. um, yeah, and Michael, you're going to be getting some Giza crystals as well, and those are the most oh. powerful on the planet. So, um, and you don't have to pay for them. So, ah. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> hold off, your... hold off on the uh, on the. Um, you know, yeah. On those other ones. Thank you. I'll, yeah, I'll save some money, and I'll probably I'm gonna get just what I need. So uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and you know it's funny, Ariel, because I, when I was reading about the Giza crystals on the website, as I was reading it, I was kind of like, I feel like I'm gonna get some of these, and there you go. So um, that's great. I'm excited. <laughs> oh, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. And you'll get a chance, um, Ariel. Are you going to perform? Um, not this time. Okay. But I'll have, I have. I will have my my CD playing in the oh, background. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Sing Ariel, like a bird. Can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, we'll be you singing around the campfire. Voice lessons. What, Michael? Some what? Oh, I was saying uh, maybe you can give me some voice lessons, though. I used to <laughs> sing when I was younger, and then that that went away. <laughs> oh. Well, I'd be happy to give you some tips. But yeah, we'll yeah, look forward to it. So great, cool. wonderful that you called in, Michael. Um, great to hear your voice, and uh, we'll see yeah, you, you next month. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much, ladies, and uh, I hope you have a nice evening. All right. Thank you for calling okay. in, Michael. Thanks, okay, Michael. Okay. Take care. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was great. That was great. I'm glad we had time for that. Um, and we are going to wrap up now. We have no more uh, no more questions. So I want to thank you so much, Leela, for all this wonderful information and the continuing work that you're doing in uncovering the truth and being a steward for the planet, doing the grid work that you do. You are a galactic treasure. Thank you, Ariel. I feel the same for of, of you, my friend, and I miss you. Someday I hope to get to see you again, connect with you live. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, maybe in Arkansas we'll we'll have another gathering, and and you'll be able to come. Maybe springtime. So, yeah, yeah. We're going maybe again in March for the equinox, Athena's birthday. Oh, I love so, that. Uh, one. Yeah, that could be. Yeah. Could happen this it could, year. It could happen. Okay. All right. Wonderful. Thank you for having me on the show. I really, truly appreciate and enjoyed being here. Well, it's been our pleasure, and thank you so much. All right. So, uh, with that, I am going to um, wrap it up and thank everyone for tuning in, and we'll be back next week. And until then, from all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, Wish you a great week, and do remember, count your blessings every day and live in grace. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 